we come to do intensive meditation practice because we have a purpose in mind. There's a purpose, there's a goal, there's a reason for doing it. Although that goal or purpose may be expressed in many different ways, I think for all of us, it involves in one way or another the purification of the mind. Purification means the freeing of the mind, first the weakening and then the freeing of the mind from the defilements of greed, of grasping, of clinging, freeing the mind from hatred or anger, freeing the mind from delusion or ignorance, not knowing. The power of the Buddha's enlightenment, among other things, was the power to see and express very clearly the path which leads to this goal of purification. So that instead of wandering or exploring the mind haphazardly with the hope that perhaps we might stumble upon freedom or liberation, there's a path which has been expressed and taught which goes very directly to that goal. What's interesting about this path of practice, which accomplishes our purpose, that is the purification of the mind, is that this path of practice touches upon every aspect of our lives. Often people come to a retreat with the idea that Dharma practice or meditation practice is something different than the rest of their lives. We come here and we do something special, we work hard, and then we go back to our lives and somehow that's apart from our commitment to practice. What becomes very clear in our understanding of the path of practice is enunciated and explained by the Buddha is that we can't separate our lives like that. The commitment to truth and the commitment to purification is such a total one, must be such a total one, that we have to integrate our efforts in every part of our lives, in every, every kind of activity. In the very first discourse after the Buddha's enlightenment, the very first one that he gave to the band of five ascetics who he had previously been practicing with, he outlined what this path of practice is. And it's the same very course, the very same course of training 
that we are undertaking. He divided it into three sections. It's a threefold training which is necessary and it's an interlocking triad of fields of training. They each support one another. The first field of training is the field of virtue or morality. The second field is the field of concentration. The third field of training is the field of wisdom. And so as we begin to walk on this path of purifying the mind, freeing the mind of greed and hatred and delusion, we have to understand and work at the development of these three areas of our lives. Development of virtue. The first aspect of virtuous action has to do with right speech. It's not by accident, I think, that the Buddha singled out speech of all the different activities that we're involved in and actually made it one factor on this eightfold path. Because speech is so important, such a powerful energy, that unless we begin to pay attention to it, to understand how we use it, the effects of it, we can unknowingly be undermining our efforts. Because right speech, the essence of right speech, has to do with our very basic commitment to honesty. Commitment to being truthful. And I think it's not so difficult to see that if we're walking on the path of truth, which is what the word Dharma means, we have to align ourselves with the truth in all of the aspects of our lives. If we're practicing truthfulness in one area and deception in another, it's going to be a very weakening, very weakening force. So we pay attention to speech in a very careful way. And normally in our lives outside of a retreat, it's, it's quite clear, I think, to all of us how much time and how much energy we spend talking. But even on retreat, even with the minimal amount of talking that's done, still there can be a very careful attention paid. I'll share with you two stories about right speech that happened on retreat. One happened during a previous three-month course 
And at the end of the course, when people were beginning to talk and having discussion groups, there was one yogi who we were, we were discussing this aspect of the Eightfold Path, his right speech. He said, you know, when we're talking and people ask me how long I've sat or how long you know, I can sit for, which is one of the questions yogis ask one another. And he said, for some reason he always adds 15 minutes. <laughs> and when he said it, there was, there was just this kind of laugh of recognition. You know? And it's like, it somehow it resonated with many people in the room that tendency, just slight exaggeration. I had a very powerful experience during this retreat this last summer with the question of honesty and dishonesty. It was in a similar vein in, in one of the interviews uh, going up and reporting and having this idea in my mind of what I thought should be happening. And it had been happening a day or two previously. But because of this idea that I had of what the practice should be doing, I reported that I was still seeing what I had seen you know, a day or two previously. And Upandita was so tuned to what happens at what part in the practice, he knew immediately that I couldn't possibly be seeing it, you know, on the day that I reported. But that was, that was finished. And that reporting was done with this kind of half-conscious um, desire to fit into an image that had been created, that I had created in my mind, of how the practice should be. And I was very... It was actually quite devastating to come face to face with even that mm, moderately subtle kind of deception. To see that the mind has all of these ploys to reinforce a sense of I, a sense of self. We do it in terms of our practice of what we think should be going on. We do it in terms of how we manifest to other people, images of who we, who we would like to be. We create these self-images and we reinforce it through our speech. And they're all slight deviations from what is actually true. Deviations from the simplicity of what is true. And as we practice, the mind gets more and more sensitive to the ways in which we move away from the truth. And so we refine that commitment and we deepen it. To pay attention to this aspect of right speech is a fundamental part of the work that we do. 
It's a fundamental part of our training. Can we be honest? Can we be completely honest? Can we not use speech to reinforce a self-image? To reinforce the sense of I? Commitment to truthfulness. It's an ongoing part of our work. There's another aspect of right speech, another aspect of this truthfulness, and that is not engaging in useless talk. In our everyday lives, we spend a lot of time talking, using that energy, dispersing our energy in a useless way. You know, gossiping and using talk that has no purpose. So to conserve that energy, to channel it for the purpose of greater awareness and greater sensitivity, to actually learn to refrain from useless talk, from gossiping. When I was first beginning my practice, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, just getting interested in it, learning about the precepts and right speech. And I became very enthusiastic and I made a resolve that for a certain period of time I wasn't going to talk about any third person. I was just going to talk to the person I was talking to but not about somebody else. And it was amazing to see that 90% of conversation was eliminated. There was not much left to talk about when I stopped talking about other people. And it was wonderful because it made the mind very quiet, very silent, and it started to decondition the judging tape in the mind, the judging thought process, which probably by now you're somewhat familiar with. It's a common, deeply conditioned tape. We reinforce it continually when we're not careful in our speech. When we talk about other people, even if there's not a malicious intent, it very often reinforces the sense of judging, of comparing. When we refrain from that, that conditioning in the mind gets weaker. We start judging other people less, we start judging ourselves less. So we begin to see this connection between the manifestation of speech and the state of mind. They're not unrelated. Commitment to honesty and truthfulness. Not speaking uselessly. And a very powerful part of this aspect of virtue or morality with regard to speech is not using speech in a divisive manner. Not using speech to divide people. But rather, using the energy to bring about harmony, to bring people together. To use it in the service of peace. Speech is very powerful, and so we have to learn to pay attention to it 
with tremendous care to learn to use this, this energy of speech with fineness and sensibility. It's the first aspect of virtue or morality. The second part of this virtue group has to do with right action, which means not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct. Not killing, expressed in a positive way, means fostering our connectedness with life forms. Seeing that all life is interrelated, interconnected, and we can develop a reverence for the life that is in all beings. There was one cartoon that I once saw in, I forget, it was in some magazine in a doctor's office, a dentist's office. I was leafing through the magazine and there was this cartoon and it showed two deer on the top of a hill and kind of a hunter down below. And the two deer were talking to one another in the cartoon. One deer was saying to the other, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds? (laughs) (laughs) There's often tremendous rationalization used for killing. And it's not to say that there's never any circumstance where it shouldn't be done. But rather that we become very conscious, extremely conscious of our relationship to all other forms of life. Just imagine the difference of life on this planet if people would follow one precept, not even the whole precept, just even part of this precept, not to kill other people. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? And yet, see how much suffering, such intense suffering comes about because people are not aware, are not conscious of the importance of harmonizing their lives. So tremendous suffering is is created in the world. Not killing. Developing a connectedness, a reverence for the life form in all beings. Not stealing. Which means not taking that which isn't given. I'll share with you another little story from the retreat. This is, this is confession time. <laughs> All my little lapses, <laughs> which became so, so strong in my mind. A 
I'm sure you're familiar with the bulletin board syndrome. You know, every time you walk by, look at the board, is there a note for me? It's, you know, the big excitement of the day when there's a note. <laughs> a few days had gone by, and had, actually quite a, quite a while had gone by, and there had been no notes. <laughs> And every, every time I look, I get a little more depressed. <laughs> I was working so hard, and I thought I deserved a note. <laughs> and it was really getting me down. <laughs> so one time I go up to the board, and I saw a note from Michelle. <laughs> and I thought she wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it off. <laughs> a few. <laughs> it took a while, but <laughs> and with some <laughs> prompting from Michelle. I confessed my deed to her <laughs> because when I went to sit after doing this dastardly deed, <laughs> it just started reverberating in my mind. You know, is this right to do? Is this stealing? You know, the note was put for somebody else, taking what isn't given. And it was amazing to me, just when the mind actually gets sensitive, right, the reverberations of just slight movements away from what's really straight, direct, honest action. And it just reinforced the sense of appreciation, well, having learned it again through a lapse, of how important it is to honor you know, the sense of integrity, the sense of honesty, of not moving away from what we know is right action. Because often our minds are too clouded to realize the effect. But what's especially interesting in a retreat, when our minds get open and get sensitive, is that we can see how even a little action, you know, that's not quite straight, it has this very powerful effect in the mind. And so it becomes a lesson for taking care, you know, and for, for cultivating a sensitivity. For not killing, not stealing. The third aspect of right action is also something that is very important to consider. And that is refraining from sexual misconduct. Of course, in a retreat, it's rather simple because we take the precept to refrain from any kind of sexual activity. But especially in our lives in the world where that is a part of our lives. You know, we have sexual relations with people. That is not outside of the Dharma. It's not outside of our practice. And there's a harmonious aspect to it and there's a non-harmonious, a disharmonious aspect. And generally what's considered misconduct is 
committing adultery. When we're involved with one person, where there's a commitment to one person, to get involved with somebody else, it's not straight. It's not honest. It creates tremendous suffering. It creates tremendous suffering for oneself. It creates tremendous suffering for other people. And it's not a situation that we're unfamiliar with, either perhaps in our own lives or the lives of other people, because in our culture, we don't, we don't take so much care with that arena. Realizing the potential for suffering that it causes, it's very important to look at that area very carefully and very honestly so we don't rationalize unskillful or unwholesome actions It's not a skillful thing to do because it's an action based on greed, based on desire that causes pain, that causes suffering to other people. So it's something to look at in our lives and take a lot of care with. It really feeds back into the question of honesty that was part of right speech, because so often we do things that we know are not skillful or unwholesome, and then we have to cover them, we have to hide them, and we get involved in webs of deception, which just compound the suffering of the situation. When we understand this, when we understand that our actions not only affect other people, but they affect our own quality of mind, our quality of consciousness, then it gives motive, it gives inspiration for us to take care, to get in alignment with what's true. There's right speech, there's right action. The third aspect of this virtue group is right livelihood. And again, it's part of our Dharma practice. Our life's work is not outside of this path to liberation, path to purification. Right livelihood has two aspects. One aspect, which is quite obvious, is not to do that which causes harm to other beings. And so, dealing in weapons is not a good idea. Occupations involved in killing or, or deception, dishonesty, to really take a look at what we're doing, to see whether it's causing harm directly to other people or not. Then there's another attitude, or another aspect of right livelihood, which has to do with our attitude in our work. Once we're doing something that is not, not causing harm, still, what's the attitude we bring to it? And the attitude of right livelihood has to do with feeling the sense of service, that we're using our energy in our work as a way of serving other people. And it doesn't have to be even particularly a job that we think of as a service-oriented job. It can be anything. 
You know, it can be filling out forms in an insurance company. It can be working in a grocery store. It can be pumping gas. Doesn't matter. Because any job that we do, if we cultivate some understanding, some wisdom with regard to it, can be done from a place of service. That we're doing it not merely to collect the check at the end of the week, although that's obviously an important part of it, but we can actually be using it as a part of our practice to connect our hearts with other people, to do it as a form of service. And that simply takes reminding ourselves, staying awake in our work, rather than becoming mechanical in it. When the Buddha talked about the importance of morality, or virtue, he talked about it in two regards. He talked about it in terms of taking care of oneself and taking care of others. When we cultivate this field of training, this area of virtue, we are taking care of ourselves and we're taking care of others. We take care of ourselves in the sense that we refrain from doing actions which are karmically unwholesome which means that we refrain from doing those actions which are going to cause us suffering in the future. We don't plant those seeds of future pain and future suffering. So we take care of ourselves. It's not very different than knowing that a certain food may make you very sick. And you know it. You know it from past experience. But if you eat a certain food, you get very sick from it. Does it make sense to go ahead and eat it? Not much, even if it tastes good, even if there's a momentary pleasure in it, but we know what the result will be. Usually, or hopefully, there's enough wisdom to say, won't do that. It's not good for me. It's exactly the same way with this basic understanding of morality. Because when we're involved in dishonesty, or involved in killing or stealing, involved in adultery, it's doing actions that we know are going to bring back real suffering for us. And so we don't do it. We refrain. We take care of ourselves. And as we take care of ourselves, we start feeling good, we start feeling healthy, we start feeling stronger. Which has to do with another aspect. And that is freeing the mind from remorse or regret. And again, it's something that generally on retreat we become very, very sensitive to. It's like as the mind begins to open up and we become less distracted, Many of those actions that we've done in the past that perhaps were not so skillful or were harmful to other people, other beings, 
it all begins to surface in this process of cleansing. And what we're really doing in the practice is cleansing the mind. In this process, everything starts to surface. And we suffer remorse, we suffer regret when we start reliving our unwholesome actions. So our commitment to morality, our commitment to virtue, protects us from that remorse. We begin to take delight in the purity of our action, rather than regret at the unskillfulness of it. How does morality take care of others? We take care of ourselves. We also take care of others. We protect others. Again, it's in two ways. We protect others through our cultivation of morality because the foundation of moral behavior is non-harming. That's where the juice is. That's where the energy of it is. We act in such a way that does not harm other beings and does not harm ourselves. And so the gift that we are giving to people when we establish ourselves in morality, we are giving them the gift of trust. We're giving them the gift of fearlessness. Because we are saying with our lives, with how we are living, we are saying to each person that we come into contact with, you can trust me. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to take anything from you. I'm not going to harm you. That's the statement of our lives. And so people get trusting. They get fearless. They know they don't have to fear us. That is a great gift. It's an incomparable gift that we give to people. And it comes about through our own commitment, our own development and cultivation of morality, of virtue. When there is no remorse or regret in the mind, the mind fills with a sense of joy and lightness. When we begin to reflect on our wholesome actions, on the good things that we've done, there's a, there's a wonderful sense of lightness that comes about. And it doesn't mean that we've never in the past done anything unwholesome, because obviously we all have. We've all done many things. But the power of morality, the power of virtue, comes about from the moment that we commit ourselves to it. It's like once we establish ourselves in that commitment, from that moment we can be said to be established in moral behavior. So even though in the past many things may have been done that were not so wonderful, as soon as we undertake to live in accordance with the basic moral principles, we have that strength, that level of purification in us. And that is the foundation. It's the indispensable foundation for the next areas of training. Which is why when we start a retreat, we start it with the taking of the precepts. 
Because from that moment, we have established ourselves in virtue. And it becomes the source of strength and energy then, of freedom from remorse that allows us to proceed on the path. There is no way to emphasize enough the importance of morality as the foundation of our practice. Because if that foundation is cracked, is weak, the whole edifice becomes undermined. So it's an area of our lives that is an indispensable part of this path toward purification, toward freedom. We must take a look at it in a very careful way. And as we do, it creates a sense of buoyancy and happiness and joy in us. Okay, it leads to the next area of working, and that's called the concentration group. And it has three, three aspects. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Right effort. How many times will we talk about this during this retreat? Many. Effort is the root of any and all achievement. The degree to which we can actually purify the mind depends upon the level of effort, the level of energy that we put into our practice. And so the responsibility for this development, for this training, always falls back upon ourselves. doesn't depend on anybody else. It's very important to understand what this word effort means because it's very easy to misinterpret it and then to get uptight. Effort has to do with the willingness to look to see what is going on. There has to be that sense, that sense of willingness in it, of wanting to do it. Because if we try to force it, we don't get very far. We just tie ourselves up in knots. And there are two kinds of effort that we make. We make, we make an effort physically, we make an effort mentally. And both sides have to be developed, worked on. What are the physical effort that we make? Just sitting and maintaining a posture requires physical effort, which is why it's not suggested particularly that people meditate lying down. Although in advanced stages it can be done without too much danger. You see that when you lie down, because there's no physical effort involved, the mind tends to go to sleep. It drifts off. It loses that sense of clarity. The physical effort that we make creates energy. So the very act of sitting and maintaining a still posture 
is making effort, making right effort. When we walk, it takes effort to move. It takes effort to move the body. That creates energy. The mental effort that's involved, and it's like two wheels on a cart. We need both wheels going. The mental effort is the, mental, is the effort to direct the mind towards the object. That takes effort, because the mind tends to be all over the place. So we have to arouse the energy. We have to be willing to look to see what is going on. That effort to bring the mind to the object creates energy in us. Mental noting takes effort. As I'm sure you've seen, very often the mind doesn't like to do it. The mind gets lazy. It takes effort to do it. It's precisely because it takes effort to do it that it's useful to do. Because that effort is like exercise for the mind. It's just, it's just like if we do some physical exercise. You know, if we're really working and exercising the body, we start to push the limits a little bit. We exercise in a way that takes effort, whether it's jogging or you know, tennis or skiing or weightlifting. To do it requires effort. And often we don't feel like doing it, and we may be tired, but we do it, and the exercise itself makes us stronger. And so the next time it gets easier to do, and we can do more. This effort in practice is exactly the same way. It creates energy. It makes us stronger by the doing of it. And so even when we're tired or it's difficult, and we don't feel like it, arousing that sense of willingness, of interest, is very helpful to keep the whole process deepening. There are three kinds of effort that we make. One kind of effort we've all made already, and it's called, has been called launching effort. That is, it launches us on the path. And that's the effort that you all made to come here. And it took, it took, it took quite a bit of effort to arrange your lives so that you could be here and start the practice. That is not to be undervalued or underestimated. That is really what launches the whole process. The next kind of effort that we have to make is called liberating effort, which is the effort that's needed to overcome difficulties. Because once we get launched on this path, not so very far down the road, the honeymoon is over, and we begin to face all kinds of difficulties. The hindrances start coming up, and pain starts coming up. Difficult, real, actual, live difficulties. It's real, and it's what we're experiencing. It takes effort to work with them, to understand them, to overcome them. We have to arouse that energy, that willingness to look at them, not to avoid, not to run away. That takes a kind of effort. But we do it, we arouse it, 
And we see that we actually can overcome these, these hindrances or these obstacles. They're there on the path for everybody, but it's possible to get through them. So sometimes we come in a place of practice to where we're cruising along. A good friend of ours who was sitting here in this group once made a music tape called Cruising with Buddha. Right? That's, that's what can happen in the practice. Just cruising along after we've overcome you know, the obstacles. And at that point, there's another kind of effort that has to be made. It's not the launching effort which gets us started. And it's not the effort of overcoming difficulties. It's called progressive effort. That is a continual infusion of energy into our practice so we don't simply cruise along. Because it's possible to get into a nice, comfortable rhythm. And we're going and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Everything's going along. That's not enough. Because if we really want to penetrate to the heart, if we really want to open to the deepest possible level of understanding, we must continually infuse more energy into the process to build up the momentum so it gets stronger and stronger. And so maybe push the sleep a little bit. Become very careful, very meticulous in the noticing of what's going on, the small details of how you stand up from a sitting, how you sit down, the small movements that you make. Can you begin noting from the moment of waking up in the morning? So that as soon as you wake up, you you note hearing, opening, and standing. So from the very beginning, there's there's that willingness or energy to see what is going on, not to become complacent. Complacency in the practice is one of the great dangers as the, as the practice goes on. Because we put in a good effort. And everybody here is putting in a good effort. And it's so easy for the mind to start thinking, well, I've done enough for today. I've done a lot. I've sat for seven hours and I've walked for five hours or whatever it is. And this last kind of effort, this progressive effort, is, the, is that quality of mind. It's the heroic quality of mind that, that is not satisfied, right? but that keeps looking, keeps investigating, keeps pushing the edges a little bit more. And again, it's not with forcing, because once it gets into forcing, it's defeating the purpose. It has to be done with balance. It has to be done with interest. There's right effort. I think I'll end now, actually. There's some more parts to this Eightfold Path, but... We'll make it in another night. I think this is a good, a good one to end on. There's right speech, 
right action, right livelihood. That's the components of basic virtue, basic morality. It is the foundation. Based on that foundation, or building upon that foundation, we begin to develop all of these different kinds of effort, or willingness to look, willingness to see. We launch ourselves. We work to overcome the difficulties that arise. And we keep going. We keep deepening. We keep penetrating. Not becoming satisfied. But always maintaining that forward edge. The forward edge of investigation. The forward edge of interest. In the next talk, we'll complete this with the understanding of right mindfulness and right concentration, which is the rest of this, of this group, and then right thought and right understanding, which is the wisdom group. Do you have any questions? Either about the talk or about things coming up in your practice? Yes? Yes, I'm going to uh, borrow from Fritz Perls, who had, I think, a very apt understanding of boredom. He said that boredom is lack of attention. And it was very insightful in that he saw that it was not a question of the object or the activity, but of the quality of mind engaged in it. And so boredom actually becomes a very useful experience for us. It's extremely useful. Because when we're bored, that is saying to us, it's telling us, it's reminding us in quite clear terms that our attention at that time is superficial. Right? That we're not really penetrating into what is happening. And so that message becomes a very useful feedback if we can interpret it correctly. Then we realize boredom is there, we know what's causing it, and then we arouse the energy to look more carefully. And you see that as soon as you bring the mind sharply focused into the object, the boredom disappears. When there's closeness of attention, there's no boredom. And so you can use it, you know, use it as a signal for yourself. Right. There's something that was important, and the sitting while I was sitting, I shared 
<laughs> Sitting in a chair reading a book does not count. <laughs> it, it's quite simple and straightforward, actually. If, if you kind of get a sense, you know, you look at the clock in the hall or a watch, of when you begin your walking period, right? you, you come to the place where you're doing the walking meditation, say, okay, it's 10 o'clock. And then you walk back and forth and back and forth. And then you stop walking. And you say, oh, it's 10.45. That's 45 minutes. <laughs> the same thing with the sitting. So you just look at the beginning and look at the end <laughs> and see how much time has gone by. Well, since there's a clock right in the coat room, or, or the bells, you know, ring at a certain time. I mean, you don't want to get totally paranoid about this. <laughs> but it's just, uh, I appreciate the question, because it really does have to do with whether one is being actually honest or, you know, shading it a little bit. And of course, it's, it's basically for oneself. Right? And, and it's helpful to be very honest with oneself. So I would encourage you to, to look at that as an exercise in, in truthfulness. Yeah. It, it was amazing to me during this, during this last summer retreat, just all the little ways the mind is so tricky. You know, it just kind of goes off a little bit this way or a little bit that way. Um, I used to... For some time I was, I was on eight precepts. And so then the question is when you can eat again the next morning. <laughs> and so the traditional rule is when you can see the first red in the sky. Okay, so then I was living in the lower walking room in the kind of dungeon downstairs. <laughs> and so I'd get up in the morning and I'd look out the window. <laughs> And of course, it's very hard to see because the, the hills are back there, and it was gray. You know, so I thought, well, it was just it was just like getting gray. Does that mean that the red has been here already, and I missed it? <laughs> so I went back and forth with that one a little bit. Again, do it. I mean, I I, I honor tremendously this quality of impeccability. Do it with a sense of mm, delight and humor rather than a sense of paranoia. Because it's really a refinement you know, of, one's, of one's being. So don't get, don't get tight behind it. But it is a very, it's a very valuable way of working. For those of you who are beginning to sit longer than the scheduled sittings, which is fine, you can sit as long as you can at a time, as long as you're being mindful. If you're sitting, spacing out, there's not much point in it. But if the mindfulness is strong and the concentration is, is good, sit for as long as you want. 
when you walk, walk for at least 45 minutes. Right? So you, that means you're going to kind of be on your own schedule. You're not going to be following the schedule of the bells. Um, I'd like to see, we can just experiment for some days now, as for those of you who want to do that, when you come back into the hall, just come back really with an effort to be very quiet. Right? So, so there's as little disturbance as possible. If it turns out that it's still it's too much traffic back and forth, then maybe people who are sitting longer might sit in their rooms. But let's try in the hall. We did it so that be people could come in the half hour mm-hmm. and leave in the half hour. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Right, we'll see how it goes, and maybe we'll, we'll arrange some system. But you can sit for as long as you want. After every sitting, walk for at least 45 minutes or an hour, because you don't want to make the, the walkings too short. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea because there are many squeaks in the walking room. Yeah. So if you're walking there during a sitting, you might close the doors. Or even during the walking period. I mean, there are people in here sitting during the walking period. Mm-hmm. And if there's 14 mm-hmm. or 15 mm-hmm. people out there walking, yeah. it's, it's really yeah. noisy. That's a good idea. Yes? Uh, was this um, teaching originally given as a monastic type of teaching or was it related to lay? Actually, as I recall, and I'm not absolutely sure, but it's it's my recollection of the circumstances that uh, when the Buddha gave this teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, that he actually gave it to uh, a group of village people. You know, in terms of how to practice in their lives in a way that led to liberation. And it's said in the kind of commentaries to that, um, that this particular village where he gave this very, it's the basic meditation discourse, which we'll be talking about in greater detail, the four foundations of mindfulness, or the Satipatthana discourse. He gave it to this, to this particular uh, village and said the people were so into it that that's what their... Um, common topic of conversation would be. The villagers would meet and, you know, what, what foundation of mindfulness are you practicing? And, uh, which is very inspiring. You know, that, that the whole path of practice is very able to be practiced by, by lay people. Yes? Uh, on this labeling, when we're sitting, it's fairly straightforward with the label. But when you're moving, when you're when you're going from one place to another, you have many stimuli reaching, many inputs. Do you label only the most predominant ones or do you label as many as you can become aware of? I mean in your mm-hmm. thing meticulous mm-hmm. as you can. Label the predominant ones. The question was that when you're kind of going from one place to another, um you know, and there's ma- many different kinds of stimulus, stimuli. How much should you label? Should you stay with just what's predominant or try to label each input? 
Um, for the most part, stay with what's predominant, labeling that, being aware of the other things, but not necessarily making the mental note of them. Right? You can't help but be aware of them. I mean, you're, you're oh, there. <laughs> one could help. <laughs> you want to be aware. Uh, use the noting for what's predominant and for anything that carries you away. So if as you're moving and you're noting, for example, left, right, or stepping, or reaching, or whatever, and some stimuli, some stimulus takes you away from the object, then it should be noted. But if it's just a passing one that you're aware of but is not taking you away, there's no need to note it. Okay, last question in the back. I think what would be helpful is to... <laughs> we saved the confession booth. <laughs> this used to be the chapel. <laughs> um, to retake the precepts in one's own mind. You know, to really acknowledge that one, what one has done and just again to recommit oneself to the undertaking of them. Because it will, it will strengthen again uh, one's resolve and again establish one 